Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is 2.05, and Joan Esposito has a day off. She's a little under the weather, so I'm Tori Ryder, sitting in for her today and tomorrow. She's going to get some time to recover throughout the weekend. And then with with our good wishes um, and science and time and sleep, she'll be back. We have, we estimate on Monday for her usual show. So we've got a good three hours to spend together, and it should actually be really fun. Lady B, behind the controls, as ever, taking your calls, as ever. Phone number here remains the same no matter who is clutching a Kleenex to their nose. Uh, that would be 773763WCPT. And I am, again, Tori with you and Rider Like the Truck. Lots of uh, lots of upset yesterday um, in the far northwest side of Chicago, where apparently there has been a, a trend uh, to post anti-Semitic graffiti and slurs, and it started at an elementary school and then moved to a middle school. Parents are planning a peace walk which I think is a lovely thing to do in any case. I'm I'm all for a peace walk anytime, anywhere. Even in a blizzard, I would do a peace walk. I would. Because if you're walking for peace, you're not putting swastikas in anybody's bathroom. If you're no, I would make my kids, actually, when they were... That's what I would do. Maybe I wouldn't go if it were really cold. I'd make the kids go walk the peace walk. They can't be getting in any trouble on a peace walk now, can they? No. In all seriousness... I was interested to see that some of these kids and parents reported being terrified. And I I'm going to I'm going to pull back the Wizard of Oz curtain here a little bit and tell you that like some of you I have been a minority in a majority setting at school most of my young life. And it is not necessarily easy. Uh, You run into, at best, woeful ignorance, and at worst, outright bigotry, hostility, and sometimes violence. And I got all of that. Um, But I will say this, graffiti doesn't scare me necessarily. Graffiti doesn't terrify me, necessarily. And hostility is an awful thing to put a kid through, but I will tell you, frankly, that I got some benefits from having to fight my way through as a minority in a sometimes violent setting. I don't wish it on anybody. And I made darn sure that my kids, when I raised them, were in a setting where they wouldn't be without a community. That was really important to me. But I don't know if terrified is the word that I would use to describe a bunch of racist or um, hateful graffiti in a bathroom. I would absolutely be concerned. I'd absolutely be addressing it with the administration and the principal. I'd absolutely mount a teaching campaign because if these kids are learning this stuff at home, maybe they can unlearn it at school. It's not too late. It's possible. 
But my question for you is, do you think that it's always harmful, entirely harmful, to be a representative of an, I want. I don't want to say oppressed, I want to say, what would be the better word, the, the focus of fear, ignorance, hatred, is it always entirely a horrible thing? In my own experience, it was and it wasn't. In my own experience, and maybe yours, when you have to fight to be respected, when you have to fight for your place, when you have to fight for the right to be treated like other people, there's some skills that come along with that eventually. In the short term, it's just got awful. I mean, it really is. But in the long term, one of the things that you may get from that experience is an understanding of how important it is to stick up for other people who may be in that situation. You may get a sense of compassion for people who are in a minority and being mistreated. And you may learn more about your own ethnic group or religion or history. You may become better informed about who you are in the world if that's your path. And as a parent, I ran into this recently. Um, apparently, we've done a really good job of raising our kids where there was no, um, there was very little bias against them that they had to deal with on the day-to-day. And one of my kids in a work situation just recently ran smack dab into some. He identified it. He knew what it was. He was a little bit shocked. He came home and told us about it. And I said, uh, well, first of all, congratulations to us, your parents, for having raised you. So this is a first because uh, it's not usually most people don't get to be the age you are and never have run into this. And second of all, we know what it feels like and we're sorry. And you just have to find another way. If your path is blocked for something because of who you are, you have to make another path. You have to find another way. And when you make your own path and when you find your own way, you can be even prouder of what you've accomplished. There was no privilege involved or less. There was no leg up involved or less. Or you build coalitions. Or you build strength with other like-minded people in different groups. You get a whole different skill set. So if I were a parent at Edgebrook Elementary School or Middle School, and my kid came home and said, someone put a swastika in the bathroom. I think you and I would spring right into action and say, okay, what are we going to do? Let's talk about all the different things we can do. But terrified? I'm not sure I would go for terrified. We're a long way from having somebody shooting through our front windows or blowing up our house of worship. Or Terrified is a thing for way down the road. First, let's intervene. First, let's see what we can get from this for character, for compassion, 
for solidarity with other people. Let's work on those things and let's not scare the heck out of our children every time some Yahoo who may have just seen it on the Internet or whose parents may be inculcating them with this kind of stuff. And I don't, by the way, necessarily assume that it all comes from home. I think kids are perfectly capable of becoming atrocious little human beings all by themselves these days. So, your thoughts. Texts, we love them. Uh, You can text us at the very same number where you can call us. So, if you're still at work and you have thoughts about this, but you can't call because you're at work. You know how that is. Well, they don't know if you're texting. Just go ahead and text. Just stick, take your phone out of your desk drawer and just text. Uh, 773-763-WCPT. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. And we will take a call, get back to this in just a moment. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, yes, the facts do matter. It is Joan Esposito's show, but so do your opinions. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan today, tomorrow. Um, let's talk about this incident at Edgebrook Elementary and then middle school on the northwest side of Chicago. Um, they're planning a peace march because swastikas were in the bathrooms. And uh, we can only guess what language was in the bathrooms. And uh, one of the one of the parents felt that the child was unsafe because of this. Some of the parents reported they were terrified. I'm not so sure we need to just go to terrified. That's like zero to 80. Let's first talk about what's behind this what we can do to promote conversation. And if you have a kid who's the only at his or her school, how do you handle the invariable um, difficulties that come up when you have a kid who's the only? Let's go to Steve in Chicago. Welcome. You're on WCPT. Hi, Tori. Hi. Um, as a gay man who is old enough to remember when you would look both ways before you went into a gay bar um, and then saw such great improvements and such recognition of civil rights, but has also seen over the last couple of years, people walk into gay bars and shoot dozens of people with the intent to kill. I am terrified. Uh, It doesn't, it doesn't debilitate me. It doesn't make me stay home. But yeah, if I, if I had a kid in school and somebody was painting hate symbols in the, the bathroom, I'd be, I'd be terrified. Huh, that's interesting. Hopefully, hopefully it is something just, not, not, I don't want to say innocuous, but it, hopefully it is just a kid being stupid. But I would also be concerned that it's a kid that can get a hold of a gun and comes in and shoots a kid. You've just brought up something very important. That's really important, Steve. First of all, concerned, absolutely. I hope I haven't given you the, the impression I'm not concerned. Terrified is, you know, I don't want my kids running around being terrified. Gun, you just said something very important there. Because... I'm not going to say to a kid, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's probably nothing. No. Did I say that I would say that? I, I didn't say I would say that. You're being very blithe about it. That's, the, that's how Not at all. Not at all. I want to use this. I want to use this as an opportunity to tell my, I've been here, okay, and I am part of a community that has been gunned down regularly. So I'm, I understand 
I have lived a similar path. But what I'm saying is, before you're terrified, let's talk about the difference between words, actions, and the space there where you can make a change and make a difference. Because before somebody gets to bringing a gun somewhere, which is absolutely, I mean, then they've really taken a concrete and harmful action. And at that point, I'm... Yes, terrified and be anxious to make an intervention of a physical kind. But I think language and graphics, they are a red flag that you need to start having a conversation, intervening, making a pathway, and also use this as an opportunity to make your kid grow a strong shield, a sense of the right and wrong, and an obligation to stick up for himself or or herself and everybody else who's being bullied. But I don't think you go from zero to 80 because some kids who want to make trouble put a swastika in your bathroom. I just don't. And if you think that makes me blithe. It does, because this is somebody who is being honest about her reaction to it, and you're shaming her for it. You don't know what background she has. You don't know what experience she has. Why focus on what you can do and the good that you can do instead of shaming the victim. Why why do you think that for me saying I don't want to be terrified that 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 is shaming? Because you said don't go from 0 to 80. Don't. don't that I I stand by that statement. I totally yeah, stand by shaming. because and you totally shaming. When you do that, you victimize yourself. You make yourself a victim, and that doesn't get you anywhere. reacted honestly, and you shamed her for it. Well, we have a complete difference of opinion about that, but I, I really am glad that you, you called and said that and, and that you put that through. I appreciate it very much. Honesty, we, we like it. Let's go to the next. We've got a plethora of Steves. Hi, Steve on the Gold Coast. Welcome. You're on WCPT. Yes, I, I'd like to say I couldn't agree with you more. Because what the last caller, I think, is missing is that we, by going from zero to 80, you empower these people such that they know that, you know what, they don't have to engage in anything other than this sort of nonsense in order to get us off of our game. And we're going to, we're going to stop our lives. We're going to stop everything we're doing. We're going to cancel class. We're going to do all of these things because somebody did this sort of nonsense as if this were akin to bombing a place of worship or somebody's home. You know, so keeping things in perspective is necessary. When you call, uh, you know, everything terror terror or terrible, I'm sorry, or terrifying, then it reduces the the impact of what that term means when it really is terrifying. Yes. And so, uh, you know, so I'm sorry, it's terrifying if you were praying on a Sunday and a firebomb came through the window. And perhaps killed a couple of people. That should not be in any way, shape, or form on the same plane as this nonsense. Well, I I mean, I don't don't completely class it as nonsense. I think it's a form of bullying. And I I think that we should, and and even with bullying, by the way, I think there are different forms. I mean, I think if someone is writing a slur on a bathroom wall— It's bad, but it's not as bad as if they grab you after school and shove your face down in the gravel. The the idea that there's only one form of abuse and that it's all of equal 
uh, strength, I, I have a problem with that. It's, I mean, right, absolutely. And 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 the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Justice Department make these distinctions because they recognize that you know what there are there are millions of morons out there who are willing to do something like this. Luckily, only a fraction of them, a tiny fraction, are willing to go any further than that. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up the Southern Poverty Law Center, who, full disclosure, I write checks to every year because they actually track who's fomenting these views, who's gathering weaponry around these views, who's meeting and training with these kinds of views. And I want I want to know. At every level, what's happening? You should want to know who's the casual white supremacist on your block in, in usually his basement writing horrible things online, and who's the person leafleting neighborhoods, and who's the person in the woods of Michigan planning to kidnap the governor. There's a difference. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Good to hear from you. So... uh now I've peeved off at least one of Joan's listeners. It's okay. You, we can disagree here. That is, I, you know what? You know what makes the most boring radio in the universe? If everybody agrees, that's what makes the most boring radio. So if you want to know a little bit about why I know a lot about this, as I've mentioned, and, and you may have grown up as, as the prior caller was, one of the onlys, the only queer person, the only black person, the only brown person, the only Asian person, the only Jewish person. A lot of people will say, I, I happen to be Jewish. Well, nobody knows you're Jewish. Well, they know certain things. They know that you're not celebrating Christmas. Can I just say, <laughs> personal note, this is the first year ever in my life that I can recall, and maybe it's just that post-COVID, everybody's not out and about, but I don't remember ever having gotten this far in the holiday season without somebody referring to Hanukkah as the Jewish Christmas, which it is not. It's not. It's no more Christmas than Easter is the Christian Purim. That has nothing to do. Absolutely nothing. But um, the... The level of lack of understanding. And, and you know what? It, it comes from a, this is the thing. It comes from a good place. It's a teachable moment, I believe, as they used to say. I think maybe we're learning a little more about each other and everybody can have their own calendar and everybody gets to be who they are. And it's more interesting to me to learn about Dahwali than to just say, oh, the Hindu Christmas. I mean, that's. It doesn't work like that. You get to be your own self. But I will tell you this. I was beaten up. I was made to stand and tell a whole class why I didn't believe in Jesus. I mean, I it, I can tell you that as a third grader, that's no fun. I was asked to show my horns. Um, I can't even. This was the, the heart of the Bible Belt the, in Kansas. And half the kids were just ignorant. And some of the kids were probably told terrible things at home. But it gave me an opportunity, as long as it wasn't violent, as long as it wasn't keeping me from getting an education, as long as it wasn't preventing me from being who I am. And when you send your kid to school or you went to school, it's important, so important that you get to grow up to be who you 
are. And that, I believe, is where you intervene. When someone in your school is doing something that keeps you from getting the education and uh, whatever else, cultural programs, whatever they have that you're there to get, when they inhibit your ability to function and participate, that's when we intervene. In the meantime, it's an opportunity for education. Number here, 773-763-WCPT. I am Tori Ryder. It's Joan Esposito's show. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show, 231. I hope that you are, if you're at work today, that you're able to get home on what is a very slick and dark sort of wintry Chicago coming to get you afternoon. If you're listening, streaming online (laughs) from some warm, lovely place. God bless you. Um... (laughs) We'll be thinking of you as we slide off the road when things start to freeze up. And remember, Chicagoans, the minute it starts to snow, check those signs. You don't want to be parked on a snow route. That's no fun. We are talking about the difference between terror and teachable and bullying and genuine threat, um, all in light of the incident that just unfolded on the far northwest side of Chicago, right near where our studios are, actually, at Edgebrook Elementary School. After swastikas were uh, found in the boys' bathroom, they planned a peace march, a nice thing to do. And uh, there were also other racial terms put on the wall. And once the uh, elementary school sprang into action, the same kind of stuff popped up in a middle school. So it's of concern. It's an opportunity to teach. But I think it is important that parents and the community make it known they take these things seriously, but that this is not a terrorizing incident. This is a bad, concerning thing that needs to be addressed. But some folks are operating from a position of abject fear. And I think that that keeps you from doing what you need to do when you're confronted with these sorts of aggressions. You need to provide teaching opportunities for your kids, for your community, for the faculty at the school, and move from there. Although I've just been told that I'm shaming people by saying, don't don't be terrified. Be strong, be resilient, take action. Mike, driving to Bloomingdale. So good to hear from you and welcome to WCPT. Well, welcome. I, I listen a fair amount on my drive. Don't call in too much, but this makes too much sense for me uh not I graduated high school in 1980, and man, I'll tell you, I was I was an only event in the protected classes, but I did have a big mouth. I was rather slight. I was a smart like, and I got beat up a lot. But at that time, the input I had was, you know, from family members, friends couple teachers, you know, people that in general, in that case, and one would hope always, had my best interest at heart. So when I started talking about something that was, you know, possibly leading to something harmful to me, I was corrected. 
Well, that's important to to say that, you you know, you also I'm assuming what you're telling me is that when when violent things happen to you, you then expressed a, a desire to for revenge to get back at people in a violent way. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. And I had firearms in my room, but honestly, the thought of taking anybody out. I don't know if that that never occurred to me that I remember, but I had a support network there that had my best interests at heart. And now, you know, maybe this makes me the OK Boomer generation, but there's too many options of going online and finding somebody who has no reason to give a damn about you or a group of sane who will tell you that whatever you're feeling is perfectly normal and it's the other person's fault. And I think there's just a big bunch of circular logic that can happen there that... I don't know. I well, guess I'm old. Okay. I don't think you're old. Uh, but then again, don't ask me my age. Let, let's roll back to something that you said that I think does deserve to be uh, pointed out and, and referenced. You did mention that some of the reason you were um, undergoing the bullying, if you don't mind me describing it that way, um, is that you were slight, small. And I do want to make a distinction here. When you're slight and you're small, um, it, it, it's unlikely that... You're, well, you may remain slight and small forever, and then you get to go out and run a big company and show them all. But um, usually the, the, what people will tell you who are adults is, well, it's not going to be like this forever. You'll grow. You'll fill out. You won't, you won't be the little kid. I do want to point out that if you're being bullied because you're of color or you're gay or you're a minority religion, that's not going to change. And so it is a slightly different thing to talk to a kid who's got some kind of uh, progression ahead of him or her. Like, okay, well, you're going to fill out if you're flat and people are torturing you because you wear no bra or you're going to be tall and and rugged and look at your dad, look at your grandpa. But it is very different if you've got a kid who's always going to be um, gender nonconforming or who's always going to be... um, a, a, a minority religion, as far as you know. So that there is a difference well, there. I agree with you. I agree with you, and that's why I prefaced it, why I wasn't in any sort of quote-unquote only class. Yeah, yeah, but okay. I wish you would focus on the, uh, the conferring with people who have your best interests at heart. Oh, yes. And keeping things in perspective, like you said. I mean, this is, this is just some idiot kid that needs to be dealt with but they don't need to be amplified, which is what's happening right now. So let me ask you a question. Let's assume that enough interrogations happen at enough family dining tables that some parent finds the kid who did this. What now, in your opinion? Well, that parent should, would hope, try to talk to the parent in question, um... And if that doesn't work, I guess then you go to the school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a biblical reference to that in terms of, you know, you talk to the person and then you talk to the person's network and then you go to the elders. You know, no yeah. different here. You yeah. You handle it locally and then you escalate it if needed. Yeah. So. 
I can't, you know, this may sound weird, but assuming that this kid is not learning this stuff at home, which I very much hope that this kid would not be doing, and I'm assuming it's a boy because this stuff was in the boys' bathroom, so elementary school, you usually wouldn't find a lot of girls doing that, uh, going into the boys' bathroom. So I'm assuming it's a boy, um, and I'm assuming that somebody besides the actual boy saw it, and I'm hoping they'd come forward and speak to their parents, and I'm hoping that... What would happen at that point is an an education process that this sort of graffiti and this sort of racial language and these sorts of words actually hurt people's feelings. I mean, in a very deep way and scare them and the and, and the historic reasons why. And I think when people have a concept of the history, they're assuming they're well-meaning and not just, you know, as you put it, I forget your word for it, but idiot kids. Um, maybe you have a chance and some hope. But if they're getting it from home, that's a whole different deal. And I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that many kids have the moxie to stand up to their parents, but you can try. You want to hear my favorite standing up to the parents story? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm going to thank you for calling because I'm going to give some other folks a chance to get on the line. But I'm going to tell tell my favorite standing up to your parents story from my girlfriend, Sam from Texas. Thanks for calling. So here's my favorite one. It happens to involve Jews, but my girlfriend, Sam, unionized, I believe, the newsroom of the Dallas Morning News. She's always been an advocate for every possible civil rights organization. But in this particular case, her small town, bigoted, never met a Jew in his life dad was sitting at the dining table. And I'm going to do my best Texas for you now, which is not too bad because I grew up in Kansas. And he's going on, my girlfriend Sam's actual name is Mary Margaret. Mary Margaret, those Jews run all the businesses and they have all our money. They just run it, they collect it, they take the interest on it. So Mary Margaret, just know the Jews are running all the banks. And my girlfriend Sam, otherwise known as Mary Margaret, said, Well, Daddy, do they have some of our money? And he said, Don't be ridiculous, Mary Margaret. Of course they don't have some of our money. And she said, that's why I love my girlfriend Sam so much. Well, Daddy, if they don't have any of our money then why do you care? Yeah. Every now and then at the dinner table, you get you get these great moments. Um, we're going to take more calls in a second or two. You can join us on WCPT. The phone number is 773-763-WCPT. Again, 773-763-9278. You can also text us sneakily while you're at work before you leave and hit the road because I know you can text while you're driving. I do it sometimes, but it's a bad idea. I know it when I'm doing it and don't you do it. Don't be like me. Don't be like me. Don't be like me. Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder on WCPT. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I am Tori Ryder in for Joan. We're talking about when you should panic (laughs) when when something happens in a public school that's bigoted, that's scary, that's out of your control that um, makes your kid feel unsafe or afraid 
What's the difference? I got a little bit disturbed that this incident at Edgebrook had the parents, so, well, I shouldn't say the parents, some of the parents, according to the articles I read, terrified and so upset that they, they were in fear for their kids' lives and safety. I'm more concerned when people are beating up kids. I'm more concerned that somebody brought a gun to school. I'm more concerned about incidents where people um, just routinely, physically show aggression to kids who have uh, spectrum disorders or mental health challenges or intellectual development difficulties or belong to a minority race or religion. The graffiti is an opportunity. The graffiti is a teachable moment. The graffiti is a signal. It's a signal. It's just like in with the Russia-Ukrainian war. Before we started shipping millions of dollars and billions of dollars of weaponry to Ukraine, before Ukraine was attacked, there were signals. And we had an opportunity. It didn't go well, but we had an opportunity to intervene, excuse me, to intervene and make make things go another way. And it didn't happen, so we moved on to the other physical interventions. And I just object, as someone who grew up as a minority, to to the immediate emotional escalation to this is the worst thing that could happen. This is the worst thing that could happen. It is not the worst thing that can happen. Believe me, we've now all, if you watch the news, you've seen the worst thing that can happen. This is an opportunity to change what can happen. Let's go to Stephanie in Kankakee. Welcome, Stephanie. You are on WCPT. Thanks for calling. Hi. When my mother was young. Her mother worked in Skokie. And if you know anything about Skokie. I do. Very high And my grandmother works for a lady. And one day, the son um, called my uh uh, grandmother, the N word. Oh boy. And the mother did not know what to do. And so the daughter, who was young, I think she wasn't even in school. And so the mother said, That's not a nice word to call somebody. She she said, Well, that's what they are. The girl asked, Well, is that, is that because she's proud? And she says, No, that's just a nasty word. So she says, Well, why is she proud? And she said, You know what? I looked at her and said, I think she would be much prettier if she was brown. And the little girl said, oh, would you like me to buy all pink crayon? No. She said, why? Because I think she would be ugly with some all pink. She said, it would be ugly if people weren't all kind of color. Well, I, I like parts of that story. Um, did the mother ask the little girl who was the one using the N-word? Not the mother, right? Just the little girl, if I understood you correctly? No, the brother. The older brother who was like in fifth grade used oh, it. The brother, I and see. The sister, and the little sister asked the mother what was the word. And the mother corrected the brother. She told him that's a nasty word. Don't use it. That's something we use in this house. But then the girl asked, why does she? It's because she's brown that he called her. Hmm. Did did the mother use this as an opportunity to talk, or at least in in front of the hearing of of your relative? Did she use the moment to talk yeah, about yeah. how the the harms that are done by this kind of language? And and was that an opportunity that that she witnessed? Yeah, yeah. My mother told me this is what happened, and she said she was she didn't know what to say. She 
scenario do. Well, that's the least you would hope for. And ideally... And then she, and then she made the girl understand that the different races are beautiful because that's the way God wants There you go. That's the key. That every every skin color, every religion, every... it's It's... I mean, again, it's like I said about the show. If we all were the same, it would be very, very boring. Very boring. Thank- you're right. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you for calling. I'm sorry the line's not a little better. That That's sometimes hard. Um, it's difficult to know, you know, what to say in front of the person who's being um, harmed or called out or damaged. It's hard to know how much to say. But again, I turn back to there has been strength drawn by me. I, I just had a visit from a, a girlfriend of mine um, who is a, a black woman who was one of the first to um, integrate at Northwestern, the the university there. And she had a 50th year reunion with her sisters, her uh, sorority sisters. And interestingly, all of those women, every single one of them has done amazing things with her life. And I think some of that is when people treat you as less than and people try to take away your opportunities and people try to negate your skills and talents and your beauty and your force in the world, you can use that energy just the way they do in the martial arts, turn it right around and show them. And that is one possible thing to do. I'm not saying there aren't people who are destroyed by this. There absolutely are. And I'm not saying the system is set up so that everyone has a chance to turn it around. But I am saying that when you have an opportunity like this Edgebrook school incident, instead of being terrified, you can be strengthened. You can do what some of the parents are doing and call it out and have a march and say, we, you know, we don't feel this way and you're safe here. You kids who are different than the majority, you're safe here. This is a safe community for you. And that's a thing that you can do if you aren't in the group that was called out. Let's go to Brian. In, is Brian ready? Can we go to Brian? All right. Brian, welcome. You're on WCPT, Joan Esposito Show. Oh, Terry, how you doing? I'm well. How about you? Eh, I'm doing okay. Getting ready for the cold <laughs> coming in. Here it comes. Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, well, uh, I just wanted to say I used to teach. I'm retired now. And I always made sure in every one of my classes uh, that they fully understood that whereas people of certain races, it's more understandable that they would be uh, racist against people of other races. Uh, but uh, racism uh, is uh, uh, never justifiable. And the same principle uh, where uh, victims, those victimized by religious persecution, why they might be more bigoted by against people of other religions, more understandable, but never justifiable. Well, I think you've said that very well. It's it, you can understand why people do these things if they're if they're inculcated with a value that says, you know, I'm better than everyone else, or I'm my what I believe is more true than what anybody else believes. It, you can understand how it happens, but you're right; it's not acceptable. I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Let's go to Paul in Seattle, waiting patiently. Hey, Paul, welcome. You're on WCPT. Have we lost him? Hi. No, I'm here. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay, your thoughts. Okay. 
Right. Uh, well, I can see kind of everyone's side of this here. And as an educator, uh, I started teaching in 1984. And um, the reason I understand, I understand your position, but the caller who was sort of more upset than you are has some real legitimate fears. I, in my career, this is what he's afraid of. I apprehended three times a gun from a student, and the first time was from a semi-automatic pistol from a 12-year-old. This kid was seriously emotionally impaired, and he ended up in a mental uh, mental hospital. Uh, he was a huge guy. Who, I mean, he was my size at, at age 12. I'm, a, you know, I'm not a huge guy, but I'm big enough. And he was. He ended up being like six foot eight, 280 pounds, and this kid had a gun. And this this was before there were any school shootings. No one took it seriously. This was pre Columbine, and so I think uh, you're right. We approach this as a teachable moment, but we also have to let people know that this kind of ignorance isn't going to be tolerated. And I just want to fill in for the conversation about if you do find out who this might have been, uh, no, you approach the school officials. Don't approach the, the, the parent. Let the school officials do that because this did happen on school property. Let the school officials investigate it and look into it. But uh, it needs- and that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, if if it turns out, you know, if if it turns out at the dinner table that your kid knows the kid who did this and tell you, it probably it is not your place to directly go to that kid's family. It is your place to alert the school administration. I want to flag though what you said about the gun. That's a whole different. That this is exactly what I'm talking about. A gun is very different than a crayon. A gun is very different than a can of spray paint. They, you really can't, in my opinion, equate the two. They're just not the same. The most extreme kind of discipline needs to show up for a kid who brings a gun to school. Um, Carrie, can I say? Can I say this? Sure. Because these these behaviors escalate so quickly, they're part of a similar set, and I can tell you this. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true. I, I don't think we have data that show that that's true. That's my point exactly. I, I, we have a point of disagreement there, but I thank you for calling about it. And and we just, just and there, the data about people who think rotten things and say rotten things versus the people who are moved to do dangerous, violent things. It's interesting to see that in this political climate, it seems to be more permissible, and that's of great concern. It seems to be escalating, and that's of great concern. But I still think there's a big chasm between thinking rotten things and doing violent things. And instead of saying that they're the same we need to exploit that space between an attempt to intervene and make a difference. That's where we have an opportunity. That's where, instead of me being stood up in front of a whole class of third graders and telling them why I don't believe in Jesus and why I don't have Santa Claus, instead of my kid brother being sent home from public school with a nativity scene instead of at Lane Tech Public High School a history teacher telling an entire class 
that one religion believes that they have a monopoly on heaven, a minority religion, which is, of course, absolutely in this in the particular case of, of this particular religion, untrue. And when respectfully data that says that this teacher is saying things that are not accurate is sent to the teacher, the teacher denies that she ever said it. And this is a this is one of the shining stars of this kind of ignorance, this kind of bigotry, these kinds of views about gay people, black people, brown people, Jewish people, Muslim people. These views are everywhere. But don't panic. Meet with the teacher. Meet with the administration. Have the peace march. That's my point. Take the interim action. Because when you just become terrified and hide in your living room, you lose. You lose. You lose your freedom and you lose the chance to change something for somebody. And to say, oh, you know, I I didn't really understand your minority religions view on this. Oh, I didn't really understand what life in your neighborhood is like. Oh, I didn't I didn't understand that for four miles around where you live there's no grocery store. And so, you know, you're angry. <laughs> I'd be angry too. So all of these things, these are opportunities. And we should take them. And I commend the people of Edgebrook who organized a peace march. That's one of the things that you can do. And I hope they'll do more things like that. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan, you're listening to WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. Five minutes now after three o'clock. I'm Tori Ryder. As you're getting ready to make your way home, if you are a Chicago listener or Chicago suburban listener, it's slick out there. As you've heard, be careful. Take it slow. Make sure you have us with you because, heck, if you're going to spin out and end up in a ditch, you at least want it to be entertaining while you're there, right? Yes. I kid. Um, We have been talking uh, with all of you about um, some of the some of the uh, racism in in Chicago schools and and how people are handling it. But I want to turn your attention to um, the conviction just a couple of hours ago from another group of racists, white supremacist military. um, I I wouldn't call them military. That's a That's a disservice to our military. The people who plotted to uh, support those who were actually planning to kidnap Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer. If you haven't heard, the folks who actually were physically involved in the plot already got their sentences handed down. But just a couple of hours ago... Jackson County Circuit Court Judge Thomas Wilson sentenced to a minimum of 10 years, Joseph Morrison, 12 years to his father-in-law, Pete Musico, and the third guy, Paul Beltar, got a minimum of seven years in prison. Why? For supporting this plot. And here's the beauty of it. You're going to be so happy they got a gang enhancement. 
this is a white guy gang. Let's be clear about what some of these paramilitary groups are. They're gangs. They're gangs the same way that a lot of people flip out about gangs in cities, gangs of color, gangs of people going across the border with gang, gang, gang. I hear it all the time. We've got a gang problem. Why, yes, we do. And some of those gangs are white. So let's just be clear. When you operate outside the law, when you plan to take government officials hostage, when you support the people planning to take government officials hostage because you don't like them or their vaccine policy or what they do, when you just decide that you're entitled to go to, to, to go, what what is it, the DEFCON, whatever that phrase is, when you feel that you can pick up arms and use them and kidnap and kill because you feel somehow slighted or angry or upset or hard done by, guess what? You're a gang. So you go to jail with all the other gangs who go to jail. I know I shouldn't be just laughing, but I'm laughing because really we have this myopia about who can who's a gang and who are terrorists. And we've just focused where it's convenient for the majority of this country to focus their fear and attention. And what I love about this sentence is that if you're even supporting these folks, In a physical way, in a physical way, you're part of the plot. The same way that we're pulling people out of cars in Chicago and checking for this out-of-date gang affiliation roster that's wrong half the time, we're upgrading our database, and it should include these white gangs. Absolutely, it should include these white gangs, and we should treat them Perhaps even more harshly. Because look at all that privilege and what they've done with it. Look at that. Look what they've done with their privilege. Let's go to Mike in California. Hey, Mike, welcome. You're on WCPT. Thanks for calling. Uh, hi, Tori. Hi, Tori. Hi. Um, I appreciate your comments today. Um, it's actually kind of amazing. Normally I don't call in, but I, I just wanted to say that uh, I've been listening and it's just amazing that we allow this sort of thing. Well, your current comment about the guys who've been um, prosecuted. Did they not think when they were planning these things that they would be caught? Did they not even consider that what they were doing was going to be punishable? You know, that's a great question because... I, I wish I could say that I knew for a certainty. I'm going to get out my very favorite tool now, Mike. It's called the speculator. <laughs> do you do you have a speculator at your house? I do. Yes. And, and, and my point is my point is this. Yes. We all know what crime looks like. Crime looks like a group of black guys selling drugs. That's the the current idea. Or a group of Hispanic people selling drugs or doing something on the street. And I bet you they know or have an expectation that they might get caught. But did these guys that were planning these things not have an idea 
that they might get caught. That's a really good question. And I'm guessing now that they've been convicted, somebody may ask them. So they may do an interview at some point. And I'll, I'll be waiting to read that. Mike, thank you so much for calling WCPT. I would love to know. That's a great question Mike raised. Did they not have a suspicion? Although, to be fair um, to the case, there are actually sheriffs who've been sympathetic to these folks. There are law enforcement members Minority. I mean, the majority of law enforcement, I want to be clear, operate within the bounds of the law, keep their personal politics, whatever they may be, out of their working lives. Not everybody gets to be a talk show host. But they and they bring their professionalism and their law abiding inclinations to work with. There are some and some of these white supremacist groups have been actively recruiting in ex-military, military and law enforcement. That's their that's their target. But to Mike's point, do they think they'll get caught? I wonder. I wonder if this mantle of privilege, I wonder if listening to uh, Donald Trump opine about how he's got their back and they're all right with him, I wonder if somehow they have come to believe that nothing can happen to them, that they can do what they want and they'll be safe. Because what? Because Donald Trump likes them? Because they're white? Because they have more guns? I don't know. Even the speculator isn't isn't focusing clearly for me right now. Do you have a theory? Why do they why do they do this? You'd think they'd figure out, but perhaps now with the conviction, not just of the people who actively participated in the plot, but the people who practiced uh, shooting with them, the people who supported them in their efforts. The actual orchestrators of the kidnapping plot, they were found guilty back in August. The apologies were interesting. I don't know if I believe them. Here's one choice quote from one of the now convicted. I regret that I ever let hate, fear, and anger into my heart the way I did. Hmm. If I believed it, I'd still send the guy to jail. But I'd be grateful. I'd be appreciative. I would it would give me faith that there is a possibility of change. Your calls at WCPT in a moment. Phone number here 773-763-WCPT. How do you feel knowing that there was a gang enhancement on the white supremacist who just got convicted a couple hours ago in Michigan for not the actual plot to kidnap the governor but supporting it physically? How does that strike you? I'll take your texts too. 773-763-WCPT. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. It's the Joan Esposito Show. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show, and I am here for Joan, who's a little under the weather. She expects to be back on Monday, so you're stuck with me today and tomorrow on WCPT. And we're talking about the just happened that's what I love about live radio. Can I just say this? And nobody on a podcast talking about this right now. This is what it is to be live and celebrating the conviction of these three white supremacists dressed in orange prison jumpsuits who sat, according to Reuters, with their attorneys shackled, each one apologizing for their role in the plot to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan, because they didn't like her vaccine mandate. 
I know, I know people who don't like vaccine mandates, and they're very, very angry about it. So far, none of them has plotted to kidnap and kill anybody. Why? Because they have some respect for the rule of law in this country. But what happens when that goes out the window? Very encouraging to see that these uh, three men were, I hate to call them, I wouldn't call them gentlemen. Uh, they were they were prosecuted as gang members. Well, hallelujah for that. Let's go to Brad. Hey, Brad, welcome. Oh, I hit the road. That's my bad, Lady B. Hi, Brad, welcome. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I posed this question to Tom Hartman today, and he said it was high-minded thinking, but what we have to do is to win white people over to the thinking that these white supremacists are bad. And here is a way I feel that may help. It's the economy, stupid, and it always has been. Why were why were African Americans bought and sold here? Why were the Chinese brought over here to work the railroad, lay the railroad? Why were all the other immigrants welcomed here? And even now, with the Hispanic, you know, Mexican migrants coming here. Okay, wait. I'm I I'm kind of losing your point here, Brad. What? Okay. The economy, stupid. It's cheap labor. So wait, 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 wait. Hold up, hold, hold up, Brad. You're telling me that white people are driven into white racist gangs because of the economy. I think that's overly simplistic. No, 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 no it's not that. It's not that. What? Make it's it fast, because I got other people only, waiting here. What? They have only they have only themselves to blame for the fact that they're going to be outnumbered by minorities because white people have let them stay here. All right. It sounds to me like what you're, it sounds to me like you're saying that there's some harm coming to white people from an uh, an increasingly diverse. All right. You're going to have exactly 10 seconds to make this point because you've now flummoxed me twice and I'm dumb, but not that dumb. Go ahead. White white people need to look themselves in the mirror and say, I, there's no reason for me to think I'm superior to these people because they've made America great. Good. Got your point. But I'm not I, – I, I'm with Tom there. I think you're a little optimistic. Uh, Jim in Chicago, welcome. You're on WCPT. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm I'm here. <laughs> All right, good. I can just think of the, I knew, uh, I just think of the gang members I knew, mafia members I knew through my life in Chicago, gang, gang members and murderers and criminally insane. But nobody, nobody was going to kidnap a governor. He didn't look at him like, are you nuts or what? Nobody, this is unique to this era. Trump was unique in not leading the presidency when he lost the election. He was facilitated by probably 60 lawyers who convinced him that he could stay in power. And we're in a very critical point in our history that we have lunatics that think that they can bend the law and the Constitution into their own 
volition, whatever they think is, is possible. Well, so, hold example, up a sec. Look at, hold, look at, hold, look hold on. Hold, Jim, hold on. So we have had uh, people who plotted against the president, sometimes for political reasons, sometimes because they belong to a cult. I mean, just look at Squeaky from and the plot to kill the yeah, president. That was, so there wasn't was a coordinated effort like this. Is. Well, yes, it was. But, yeah, no, it wasn't. but Squeaky Fran wasn't and, and, and social media morning, noon, uh, and night. Well, OK, so social media has definitely changed that. But I, I, I think your your bigger and most important point is that the spreading of this stuff from the highest levels of our government or former government is what's changed. And that, that has interestingly, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated and maybe you are, too, by the number of military and ex-military who feel that somehow they're entitled to completely subvert the Constitution in order to preserve the Constitution. And I look at General <laughs> Flynn. General Flynn is a perfect example of it. He's a general. Yeah. What was the last name of general in the United States? Wanted to overtake the, the country by force. It is really very. I've never heard of one. I've yeah. never heard of a general in the United States history to take over the uh, Benedict Arnold. Yeah, and, there are, and there are and there are lawyers who have no grasp of the law. I mean, if I were, if, no, if, if I were absolutely. the ruler of the universe, I would be looking at the institutions that gave birth to the Stuart Rhodes and the and the General Flynn's, and I'd be wondering what we did wrong, um, because clearly they they missed a week of classes there somehow, Jim. They, they they somehow served a country believing that we were a fascist country and not a democracy. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I, but it's just, it only can exist in early electronic media. I mean, with misinformation over and over and over again, these poor suckers in Michigan believed whatever nonsense they were being fed. They didn't just you know, generically come up with it, stand around a, 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 in the morning at breakfast and say, ooh, I don't like the way she's talking about this. Let's go do this. No, this is, a, this is a system that has to be corrected somehow. I don't know how it's going to be corrected. Well, it's, th- thank you, Elon Musk. We are now heading in the other direction. Thank you for your call, Jim. I appreciate it. Let's go to Jim in Plainfield. Hey, Jim, welcome. You're, we're getting like names and twos, two Steves, two Jims. You're our, you're our other I'm, pair of the gym today care to change your name or do you mind being a pair no i'm i'll be a pair okay um, it's very concerning to me that these guys that plotted against the governor from michigan i wonder how that's going to apply to next week's january 6th committee uh you know there's a lot of text messages that were flying there from senators i wonder if there's going to be any senators that are going to be charged Oh no, I don't. I can't imagine. I, I, I think that that y- you're aiming way high, but and and they have a certain amount of privilege and immunity that that they get if they're doing things and as part of a function of their office. But you know, if they actually have data that show that uh, there are any senators who are participating. Um, I guess we're going to see it in a, in a few days' time. It's. I thank you for alerting me to that possibility. I will be watching for it. It hadn't occurred to me, and that is why I love doing this show. Thanks, thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's really uh, disturbing to consider. Um, not just that this kind of behavior is aided and abetted at the president, former presidential level. I'd like to stress former. I'd, I'd like to say just loser. Um, I think I'm. I think I 
am fair to say that. But uh, there is a lot of support for some of these people in uh, the House of Representatives, for sure. Um, if you, ask, I mean, it's really interesting when you corner these guys. Oh, of course, you know, the law must be obeyed, of course. But then they fuel the fires. They speak, some of them, at the rallies for these people. Um, we just, by a skin of our teeth, lost um, the chance to get rid of Lauren Boebert. And nobody's getting rid of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's happy to speak to anybody, no matter how vicious. If you love her, she loves you back. That's what she has in, in common with Donald Trump. If, if you love her, it doesn't matter how odious your views. It doesn't matter how despicable your conduct. They love you right back because that's what they're looking for. And that's really all they're looking for. And what they're not looking for is to serve you, which is why I want to talk in a moment about Madam Senator Cinema. Yes, we're going to take a little trip to the cinema in a moment. This is Joan Esposito's show. It's 328 WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. A little peek behind the curtain of the Joan Esposito show. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan. Have you ever had it happen where you're at work using some tool you use at work and it just sort of disintegrates in your hand? <laughs> It's not the station's property. It's my own headphones. I'm like, oh, look at that. They're hanging off my right ear. Look at that. Oh, okay. So it's fine. You know, all of these things are just material goods. That's all. That's all. Although I would like to point out that I tried very hard to buy product from the EU instead of a product made by slave labor in China. Really worked hard to do that. So thank you, product from the EU, for disintegrating around my ears today. And I'm wondering if maybe I should have made a different decision. It is Joan's show, and we're talking about the, it's been about three hours now, the conviction of not one, not two, but three co-conspirators in the plan to kidnap um, the governor of Michigan, and then possibly they were gonna, they were going to, if you recall correctly, they were going to give her like a little trial. Do you remember this? Then potentially execute her. It's a really horrifying thought. And they trained, and they practiced, and they fomented their plot. The actual people who participated in it have already been sentenced. They were convicted in August. This is a group, I don't want to dignify, I don't want to dignify them by giving the name of their little white supremacist paramilitary group. But, you know, they had a nice alliteration there, had two W's. And and one of them is so unfair. They used the Michigan Wolverine as, as part of their name, which is so unfair to the Wolverine. What did the Wolverine ever do to them to be disgraced this way? And what interested me um, in part was that um, there was a gang uh, affiliation noted in their sentencing in this conspiracy. So of all the accused uh, uh, for participating in this plot, seven of them have now been convicted by a jury or pleaded guilty 
to participating in the conspiracy. Two people were acquitted of federal charges in April, which gave some of us a, a bit of an upset. We were thinking, oh, gosh, you know, the first two people are acquitted. What's going to happen? Can you really foment a plot to kidnap a state governor and potentially kill her? I mean, can you really get away with that? Apparently, the answer is no. And more to the point, people have been um, rightly labeled as doing this as part of a gang affiliation. The gang with the unfairly disgraced name of the Wolverine. I feel so bad. I want to go adopt a Wolverine as a pet. Shame on them. You don't want to adopt a Wolverine as a pet. I kid you. I have not. Don't don't do that. I'm not going to go off on some tangent about people with weird exotic pets, but I will say that TikTok has been very bad about this. Look, I'll get a pet eagle. No, don't do that. All right, let's go to Peter. Maybe we'll talk about that after I after I've had all your calls and thoughts about the white supremacy gangs and how it's right that we're actually calling them gangs now. Peter in Chicago, welcome. You're on WCPT Joan Esposito's show, which I am apparently disassembling piece by piece. Good afternoon. It's been a while. Yes. Never lets me on. Uh, Hey, listen. Good for those guys getting convicted. I'm a conservative. They broke the law. They were convicted by a jury. Good. Glad they were. They're nut jobs. They're not representative of the right. Just like the guy who tried to kill the Supreme Court justice was a left winger and the guy who beat up Paul Pelosi with the hammer who's a left winger. Uh, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, I don't have to let you finish. Turn him down. Absolutely not a left winger, the guy who went after Paul Pelosi. And I'm not sure about the Supreme Court person that you're alluding to, but um, the guy who went after Paul Pelosi, uh, that you're absolutely wrong. His he's got communications. Uh, he was part of the same kinds of groups online as these uh, white supremacists. That's part of his gig. Um, his communications and Facebook posts are very clear. Do you do you want another moment here? We'll turn you back up, Peter, for a second. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd love to have a conversation. Joan accuses me. Of All right, I'm this we're not going to do what. Jo- okay, thank you for calling. I'm. <laughs> I cannot discuss. It's Joan's show, and Joan gets to do whatever she wants. But if you're going to mischaracterize the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi that way, I, I, um, I think perhaps there's a reason. So, and yes, conservatives are absolutely welcome here. But as we say all the time in our little, in, in our, our announcements, facts do matter here. You, you want to call and be conservative and armed with facts? God bless you. I've got... Many friends, fewer, though, than I used to have before Donald Trump, but still many friends in in different political parties with different affiliations. And um, none of them are hateful and none of them advocate violence, even though a couple of them are really angry. They're really angry. And I I understand how you could come to be really angry. Um it's hard to lose. It's hard to lose. I mean, as somebody who worked really, really hard to get Hillary Clinton elected back in the day and when she lost and had won the popular vote, I, w- I was disappointed. I can't say that I was angry, angry, but I did remember Mrs. Loeb in fifth grade at Lee Elementary School in Manhattan, Kansas. 
when we asked, was it possible for somebody to be elected president who had not won the popular vote? When we asked Mrs. Loeb that question, or we phrased it the other way, is it possible you would win the popular vote and still not be elected president? Mrs. Loeb of Lee Elementary School in Manhattan, Kansas, said, oh, that just really couldn't happen. That just really could not happen. And I never was a fan of Mrs. Loeb, <laughs> particularly. But uh, and I, I'm pretty sure she's shuffled off this mortal coil. But I kind of wished that I could show up by magic, just just teleport myself like something out of Star Trek right into her senior center rec room and say, Mrs. Loeb, you were full of it, and I knew it when I was in fifth grade. But, you know, people believe what they're told. They believe the system is going to set up and always work a certain way. And on the, on the left, for my part, I, I never imagined that there would be people who would not accept the outcome of an election, even if you won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College. That was that was astonishing to me. So a lot of, you know, it's important, you know, always to keep an open mind. Look, things can go even more wrong than you thought they could. Look, things can be even more out of control than you imagined. Look, you can get a religious minority in control of the Supreme Court, which is what Dave in Chicago wants to talk to us about. Dave, welcome. You're on WCPT. Yeah, hi. Um, I just wanted to correct that guy that called in, uh, or at least to kind of inform him that right or left, there's extremists, no matter what side of the world you're in. Yes. Uh, our country is no different, right? Yes. Uh but, you know, I think he was, this guy was alluding to the the Supreme Court justice that they attempted when they attempted to, when they showed up in front of Kavanaugh's house. Oh, uh, that, that yes. That, okay. What, I think that's what he's talking about. But that guy called 911. To be, I'm not excusing the guy whatsoever, but. I, okay. That, yeah, they actually attacked our Capitol and, and uh, you know, did all these other things. So, Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Bye. Ah. All right. We we don't we don't you know we understand that people get heated. Kindly, kindly behave your language. Look, when I get home, I don't sound like this exactly either. My language is occasionally more colorful, but we can all learn. Yes, we can. So, you want to know a little bit more about these convictions? They're kind of fascinating. They all just happened. Uh, the So who were these defendants exactly? They assisted two other men, the guys who were found guilty of uh, the kidnapping and conspiracy actually itself. And by the way, I have a, a second degree of familiarity with, with these folks. Um, one of my girlfriends who's a retired commercial airline pilot, when this story broke a few years ago, she's like, oh, my gosh. One of those guys is a mechanic on my plane, in my on my airline. I know that guy. And what's what interested me about her statement is how little we really 
know about the people who work closely with us sometimes. I mean, we keep our, we keep our private lives private. And yet it's been kind of fascinating now that ex-president Trump has sort of removed the cloak of politesse from people with different political views that the conversation has just, it hasn't just gotten heated. It's gotten abusive. It's gotten um, profane. It's gotten verbally violent. It's gotten threatening. And I guess that this guy who worked on my friend's plane, who's been convicted now, um, you know, he probably just carried on and, and stewed quietly and then, thanks be to social media and the internet and the connection factor, he could hook up with people who were also stewing privately. And now you have a multi-ingredient stew. You've got people with some technical skills. You've got people who are willing to put their lives at risk. You've got people who are willing to travel far distances to be with like-minded others and the fiber that's connecting them all, as mentioned by one of you who called earlier, is that you, you can find people who are equally depraved on social media. Let's go to Ike in Char- which Charleston? Ike in which Charleston? Which Charleston are you calling from? Yeah, right by the ocean, South Carolina. How you doing? I'm well. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, it's uh, it's always good to talk to y'all up there. I enjoy the station. Thank God there's a liberal station somewhere in this world. <laughs> uh, it, uh, you know, I I, I, I just got to pick a bone here. And, you know, I'm getting tired of these people that try to preference everything that they're going to say by saying, I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal. You know, I'm sorry, but these words, just like socialism and capitalism, are, are bastardized now. We don't have, you know, you can look up whatever the textbook definition is of these particular words, but they don't fit what's going on here. And you've got an extremist and you've got non-extremist. And every time I hear somebody start up with, uh, you know, trying to compare themselves to something going on, going, well, I'm a conservative, but... Like in that last caller, that other caller's example, the first thing I think of is I'm a conservative, but I wouldn't go that far. Well, okay, how far would you go? Do you go with January 6th? Was that too far for you? Was Donald Trump too far for you? Now you've got to tell me what kind of conservative are you? Because from what everything I see, conservatism has been taken over and is a bunch of extremists. Yeah, I think that what we need the Constitution. We tried. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold up. Hold, hold up. I, I mean, I, I think at first we tried to slice it um, social and versus uh, political conservatives. Uh, the political conservatives were more economically conservative, and the social conservatives were more, you know, we're, we're for making sure that only men and women can get married. We're for making sure that there's no sex ed in the classroom. So we, for a little while, those those words, as we parsed them, meant something. But, but you're correct right. now that 
to to use a word like conservative as a cover for taking up arms against the government, you're quite correct. That's not conservatism. That's the ultimate in radicalism. And and the whole thing has been turned on its head. That's an excellent point. And, and you know, another thing, you know, another thing that I really find distasteful and, and that's hurt a lot of people in this world, in the United States in particular, you know, is the way that they bastardize religion. They've taken over religion to the point that I don't step foot in a church because I don't want to sit with a bunch of Republican nutcases <laughs> that have taken over the church. Oh, darling, let me let me stop you for a second. I, it, I don't I yeah. do not go to church because I'm not Christian, but I do know this from friends of mine who are very devout. If you look hard enough and you want to go to church, you will find a church that will welcome you. So if you miss going to church, Ike in Charleston, keep looking. And I thank wow. you for your call. Um, we are we delayed for what we were a business we're supposed to do. We, okay, all right, we're coming up on. Um, oh, wait a minute. We were we were going to be joined here. No, yes, maybe. All right, we're going to meet somebody in a few moments. I think this is this is if we're lucky, we'll hear from somebody who helped. Speaking of social liberalism and social conservatism, who helped tip the scales just recently? We are WCPT Radio, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We are joined and fortunate to have with us one of the leading voices in the area of family, gender, and sexuality as concerns the law. She is the James Dore Professor of Law at Columbia University's Law School. Her name is Professor Catherine Frankie. She joins us now. Are you in New York, Professor Frankie? Is that where I we're... I am, but I will, I will say I was born in Evanston, Illinois, and consider my roots and accent to be from Illinois. Well, that's good. And I'm, uh, as an um, Kansan and Chicagoan, I applaud you for bringing our wonderful Midwestern soul to the East Coast where they need it so badly. So you've been an active participant in um, moving the dignity in marriage um, law forward. Is that correct? Well, I am an academic. I'm not a political activist in the way that some of the large gay uh, organizing groups are. But I've certainly paid very close attention to this bill and to the the lawsuits that were filed along the way that led up to it. Yes, I've heard you commenting on it. And when I say you've been you've been helpful in this regard, I mean, that you know, when people are afraid or they don't understand what the laws will actually mean to them, um, you've been a, a good voice for explaining what exactly is at stake and how exactly the the former DOMA and its ilk affected people. So what's going to happen now that President Biden has signed the law? What will change for people? What will benefit same gender or gender fluid couples who want to be married? Uh, Well, it's important to recognize that actually nothing happens. The law is going to stay the same as it is right now. What this Respect for Marriage Act will do is spring into action if the U.S. Supreme Court reverses the 2015 Obergefell decision, the, the case that secured marriage rights for same-sex couples. And we're worried that that might happen this year, next year, and some some year down the road, 
because Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Thomas, uh, had a couple of sentences in his concurrence in the abortion case last June, the Dobbs case, saying that that's next uh, in his to-do list is to reverse the Obergefell decision. And so alarm bells went off around the country and Congress acted to anticipate that um, uh, future action by the Supreme Court. So now what happens if they take up a case um, in, as concerns gay uh, marriage? What, what will this law do to offer protection to couples in the face of decisions by the Supreme Court that might happen? Uh, well, right now, um, same-sex couples, and I'll, I'll also note interracial or interethnic couples, all have a right to marry in every state in the United States because of the Supreme Court's actions in the past. But if the court reverses um, the Obergefell decision or a case from the 1970s um, uh, uh, that, that said it was illegal to prohibit interracial marriages, then the Respect for Marriage Act kicks into action. And what it would do is it would say that the federal government has to continue to respect same-sex marriages, and interracial or interethnic marriages if you're married in a state that recognizes those marriages and that every state also has to recognize valid marriages from other states. So say you live in Mississippi and Mississippi will not recognize same-sex marriages and said, for that matter, we won't recognize interracial marriages. A same-sex couple or interracial couple could go to New York, get married, and then return back to their home state, Mississippi, and Mississippi would have to recognize their marriages as valid, even though Mississippi might not marry them in the first instance. That's that is really significant because the potential for disaster. And I lived in California when we went through the um, proposition. I forget which what number it had where they reversed um, right to marriage and the way that that played out in my my kids' school. Uh, we have friends, wife, wife and wife, uh, with kids in my kids' school, and they got married. Then they couldn't get married. Then they could get married. <laughs> couldn't. It was it was just. Yeah kind of nutty and and the third time their son said again <laughs> yeah. yeah but well, there are a lot of there are a lot of same-sex couples that are a little bit over married at this point but <laughs> what what this law would do is treat marriage licenses like driving licenses so when i drive from new york back home to chicago i don't have to stop at the pennsylvania border and get another driver's license and then in ohio and then indiana and then illinois Right. My my driver's license is valid across the country and my marriage license would be recognized as valid in every state in the country, too. And that's also important in terms of divorce, as I understand it. If you had a marriage, a, a same gender marriage, and um, then one of you decided that you wanted a divorce, if if the Supreme Court overturned the current status of things, you could just show up in a state where uh, same sex marriage is not legal and go, oh, we never married in the first place. I get to go my merry way and you get nothing. Well, it does raise an interesting question of whether that would be the case, because if the court overturns Obergefell, it's not clear that it would automatically dissolve all the existing marriages. It may just be prospectively in the future states. There are 35 states, by the way, who still have laws on the books that prohibit same-sex couples from marrying. So 
um, uh, but those laws wouldn't automatically um, render void or um, invalid the marriages that had taken place before uh, the court reversed Obergefell. So these are kind of difficult legal questions that we'll have to see down the road. But the defense, or excuse me, the Respect for Marriage Act will solve that problem. So, okay, let me, I want to make sure I understand. So there will be no gray area then about whether your marriage in a state that has now um, now banned same-sex marriage, even if you got married in that state, you won't have to go get married anywhere else. That Your prior marriage under the current situation would, would, would obtain. Is that, is that correct? That's the, that's the expectation of what this law would do. Okay. All right. So I just want to ask you, just as a person who is probably a little older than 30, um, to reflect on the the general public view of same-sex marriage in both parties. Um, my, I just want to say that from my personal perspective, my first exposure to um, queerness and um, same-sex love was on the Phil Donahue show one day when I was home from school, and it was painted as this strange perversion that, you know, how could this man with a wife and daughter decide that he was gay and get a divorce? And then I remember distinctly, you know, meeting gay people for the first time in college and high school, college. And then I remember when Gavin Newsom started to promote same-sex marriage during the Gore presidential race. And I remember turning to couples and saying, he's going to cost us the election because the country is not yet ready. What's changed? What? How did we get from point A to point D? So in two generations, in your estimation, what happened? Well, first of all, I want to applaud you having the temerity to out yourself as heterosexual <laughs> on, on the radio. <laughs> ah, thank you. I am, by the way, a yeah. family member of of a of a queer person, so I'm 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 connected one degree of separation away. There. There you go. There you go. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the history of the United States: is that there have been certain horrible and ugly traditions that we have over time repudiated. And whether it's certain forms of sexism, of women being the property of their husbands and fathers, or um, forms of white supremacy and the institution of slavery, um, or the hatred that this many, many people in this country have borne towards um, gay people, little by little, um, uh, we've, uh, we've moved in the direction of being a more open, accepting, and just society. And that's largely the work of, of the project of humanizing gay people, that, that gay people are not monsters, not perverts. All those ugly things that are said about gay men and lesbians and bisexual and trans people are not true. And some of that has taken place in the courtroom, but most of it has taken place uh, in society more generally. When prominent people come out as gay, um, uh, and, and they can, people who, who admired those people think, oh, wow, all right. Or relatives come out as gay. Yeah, it's what and, we call in talk radio, personal connection to the topic. Um, exactly. You could what see it, media? you could see it in the Castro. I mean, I hate to say AIDS was a horrible, horrible thing. But what it changed in San Francisco anyway, as I used to see the families coming to look after their loved ones, families who had rejected these people, was that they started to understand that, you know, these were still their children. These were still their brothers. These were still their dads. And as horrible as that was, I think um, 
you were forced in some cases to, to out yourself because yeah. there it was. Anyway, I'm yeah. really, really glad you could spend a few minutes with us. And I, is there anything you want to add to the conversation um, just with the moment that we have left? Well, it's important to note that this statute is actually very conservative and very narrow. It begins with the language, no union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. And then it goes on to do what it does around recognizing same-sex and interracial marriages. So it's a very conservative measure in the sense that it's really about respecting marriage. And I think that we were able to get 10 or 11 Republicans to vote in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act in the Senate. Um, right after the midterms, largely because some of the members of the Republican Party wanted to distance themselves from the real radical, hateful segments of the Republican Party that that really showed their colors during those midterm elections. And to draw closer to to people that they loved um, and cared about and who want to have loving marriages. Thank you so much, Professor Frankie. I really appreciate it. And the work that you have done in communicating this issue to people, it's really good of you to spend some time with us on WCPT. Well, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. All right. Bye-bye now. WCPT Chicago, it is the Joan Esposito Show. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. We are the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan. She's out and a little under the weather today. Tomorrow she will, we expect, be back on Monday. So I'm just keeping her chair warm and talking to all the interesting people that Joan wanted to speak with, including 11th District Representative Ann Williams, who just finished her efforts on, well, I don't know if I should say finished, but uh, the Safety Act. My Pronouncing that correctly? I mean, it looks like just safety, but you spell it safety. Welcome, welcome, Ann Williams to WCPT. Glad you could be with us. Thanks so much for having me today. It's my pleasure. So I think the top priority that's getting the most interest right now is probably the gun safety initiative that you worked on as part of the crime bill. Could you speak to that? What, What did you get changed? What were the most important features of the act? Well, I think it's important to look at public safety holistically. Um, We passed uh, something they call the Safety Act uh, several months ago, and since then have refined the bill with uh, various uh, trailer bills um, in the past several months. So the most recent is the one that we passed during the fall veto session, which really, I think, makes the bill uh, tighter, uh, ensures that law enforcement is able to hold violent repeat offenders accountable, but still preserves many of the criminal justice reforms we work so hard to achieve. So are you talking about, forgive my ignorance here, but all these bills have numbers and names and I never know what's filed where. Um, are we talking about the bail controversy? Is that part of what was discussed and, and what is part of this trailer? Yes, that was part of it. That was called the Pretrial Fairness Act, and that got most attention 
But the bill itself was very comprehensive and addressed many components of, you know, public safety and accountability for law enforcement, as well as ensuring um, we hold offenders accountable. Yes. Um, but, you know, there's another bill to add to the uh the, the conversation that is being considered right now, and that is a bill to address uh, firearms and provide for, I hope, an assault weapons ban. So that will be the next phase, I think, of this conversation. So let me ask you, during the election, it was just a huge campaign issue, This the, the ads from the right, like, every child rapist and, and, and mass murderer will be waltzing out of jail the second they're arrested, which, of course wasn't true. But there was a gray area and it was telling even to supporters like me of our present governor that he wasn't willing to come right out and say, this is what I want to tweak about the bill. What got tweaked? Well, it was um, kind of varied in several different areas, but I will just point out that, you know, someone asked me recently, how do I know what the facts are? How do I know what to believe on a particular issue? like the Safety Act, and my recommendation was, if it's in a campaign ad, dig a little bit deeper. I mean, right. this bill passed months months ago, uh, over a year ago, and all of a sudden, right before the election, we started hearing a lot of inflammatory language about it. But, to your point, um, there are always the need to revisit legislation to ensure that as we move forward for implementation, we're doing it in a way that works, that's effective, and achieves the goals that we set out. So what were what were some of the data that you looked at um, and what definitively changed about that um, aspect, the bail um, criteria? What what can you give me some specifics? Yeah. So one of the things, a big component of the we'll call it the Safety Act trailer bill was to add um, a number of offenses to the detention net. And that means when you are charged with a crime, the uh, judge will look and see sometimes what your past history is, look to see what you're charged with, and consider whether you uh, should be detained even though you have not been found guilty. So that's really what we're talking about. What were the crimes, what were, excuse me, what were the crimes that you could be charged with before and and get a, a generous bail offer versus now? Can you name some specific charges that were looked at one way before your trailer and a different way after? Well, the bill actually, interestingly, the the whole issue of bail, that was the problem. With the issue of cash bail, there was no regard to the severity of the defense, your risk as an offender. Everything was about your ability to pay. Yeah, you could set it higher or lower, but, you know, for someone, a $5,000 bail is unachievable. For someone else, it's nothing. So we really wanted to look at a risk-based approach rather than a wealth-based approach. So what we've done is tighten in this latest version um, of the Safety Act. We've made sure that a judge can assess risk for any offense that's a non-probationable felony with a higher burden for drug offenses that involve intent to distribute. So we're really focusing on the criminals that are violent, the offenders who are charged with, or offenders that are charged with crimes that are violent present risks to others. So, so let me let me pause you, um, make, just to make sure I'm following along with what you're saying, because I want to. If I'm confused, I'm thinking maybe a listener might be confused. Um, it's so confusing. Pardon me. Well, it is a confusing topic. It is confusing. So, so what you're saying is 
and if I understand you, and I think I would agree, that either you should be walking around or you should not be walking around, and it shouldn't have anything to do with how wealthy you are. It should have to do with how great a hazard you pose to the community if you're out of jail. Is that correct? That is. And the theme, kind of the overarching theme, is we want to detain people who pose a danger and release people who do not. So, and that's kind of the theme that we try to work around. To, to, to go back to what you said then, the judge would be able to consider, he or she could consider your prior, prior offenses so that even if this time you've just been arrested for having you know some drugs in your car, if the judge looks and sees that you spent time in prison for distributing meth and for trafficking um, uh, uh, fentanyl, that the judge might say, you know what, I think you're just going to sit here and wait for your trial date. Um, is is that what's happening now or ideally what will happen now? I don't know exactly what offenses those would correlate to, so I can't exactly answer that. But I can say generally for what I would call like a threat prong, where are we going to assess whether someone provides a, or creates a risk? We have added in this latest version non-probationable felonies. Um, Again, the higher burden for the drug offenses with distribution or intent to distribute. Forcible felonies, of course, are included, and those are the violence of felonies. Hate crimes have been added because even if there's not an element of violence, we consider that risky if you commit a hate crime. Attempts of crimes that are otherwise detainable. So even if you're not successful at doing this crime, if there's an attempt... Um, you're still considered to be a risk because maybe you'll try it again. I understand much better now. Thank you. Can you can you hold on a moment? Because I want to move to the assault weapon component and the safety of guns and, and, and move to that in a moment. If you will just hang on. Uh, we will talk again with uh, Representative Ann Williams in a moment about other parts of bills that she's proud of moving through um, in, in the, the legal system in Illinois, and we'll we'll discuss this with her in just a second. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder for Joan on WCPT. WCPT 820 is proud to introduce Heartland Signal, a multimedia newsroom of WCPT 820. Heartland Signal is dedicated to providing news coverage for the 2022 midterms in the Midwest region. At heartlandsignal.com, you can find all the day's news and views to keep you informed and up to date. If you love listening to WCPT 820, then you'll love getting your news from heartlandsignal.com. Visit us there today. This is a WCPT 820 Heartland Signal News Minute. With almost two-thirds of Ukraine's children displaced by the genocidal war Russia is waging in Ukraine, and thousands of children injured or killed as Russia targets civilian populations in the conflict, Ukraine's children are suffering serious trauma. That was the topic of a December 14th briefing given by the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, also known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission. At the briefing, Dr. James Gordon of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine tried to dispel a common misconception. You have to wait till the war is over, and then it'll be post-traumatic healing. No, the time to begin is now, and to give kids the tools and the support that they need to deal with the ongoing stress and trauma. So this is an enormous problem, and it has to be regarded as a public health problem. For WCPT 820 and Heartland Signal, I'm Andy Miles. 
WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan Esposito. A reminder, Eric Zorn is going to be uh, joining us in about 20 minutes uh, to talk about the Picayune Times. And at 5 o'clock, it's Patty Vasquez. Two hours, twice the Patty, coming up about 45 minutes from now. With us now, Representative Ann Williams of Chicago's Northside 11th District. Uh, one of the things she's proud of is uh, it enhancing, I guess would be a good word for it, the gun safety bill. Uh, Representative Williams... If I may say so, nice job. How's that? How's that coming along? Well, you know, today was the second of three hearings that we're going to be having to talk uh, generally about what is in this new bill, which is called the Protect Illinois Communities Act. And I will tell you, I have been hearing about uh, gun violence and calling. Um, my constituents have been calling on me to do something about the gun violence. You know, obviously the mass shootings, like the horrifying. Uh, incident in Highland Park, as well as the everyday violence in Chicago in all neighborhoods. It's it's just become, you know, really, really unsustainable for people. Um, so are you are, are you talking conversation? Are you talking in your conversations? Are you hearing from a lot of gun owners who say, you know, I'm a responsible gun owner. I hunt or I keep a gun in my home uh, for my own protection, but I'm licensed and I practice and I'm, you know, I I am not those people. And I want some change. Are you hearing from those folks? You know, I do hear from gun owners who are concerned about um, these same things that we're all concerned about. I don't think, you know, being a gun owner changes your concern about, uh, you know, the public safety issues and the mass shootings and the everyday epidemic, really, of gun violence that we're experiencing, you know, not just here in Chicago, but across the country. So I, I do think people want to be able to keep guns. Uh, owners want to be able to have their rights to keep their guns. But, I mean, I think a lot of people agree that why do you need a military-grade assault-style weapon capable of firing however many rounds in a minute? I mean, it's just none of that is really uh, is really what we're talking about. We're not talking about everyday gun owners. We're talking about military-grade assault-style weapons that really are used for one purpose and one person, purpose only. So you probably saw... Um, the I think it was an op-ed in the New York Times, it might have been the Washington Post, about the people who are really the change makers on this um, are some of the young people and also um, gun owners who, who want what you're describing, responsible gun ownership, better safety screening, mental health screening, red flag law. How, how much of this kind of um, intersection of the two opposed to anybody really having a gun unless you have a particular reason for having it and those who say you know i want to have a nuclear weapon in my garage um where's the intersection point and where are you finding the most agreement as you proceed with this effort well, I think that's a great question, and I think like any uh, large change to the law, you need to really build a coalition. And I think, to your point, we have a coalition here that is calling for change. I mean, the youth have been amazing. Since the Parkland uh, shooting in Florida, we have seen engagement uh, of the youth at a level. It's just been really inspiring and exciting. Um, gun owners are concerned about violence. They don't uh, you know, have a different view about 
uh, what we're seeing on the news uh, than anyone else does. So I think that coalition building has really resulted in what I would use the term responsible gun laws. You know, so we're not looking what are you doing to, to what are you doing to build that coalition? Are you having community meetings? Are you doing outreach? Where where are you seeking these points of contact with the with the groups where you want to work together? How do you do that? I think all of the above. There has been a working group in the uh, Illinois House led by my colleague, uh, Bob Morgan, who was at the Highland Park shooting. And uh, he was at a hearing today talking with uh, survivors, talking with uh, law enforcement, talking with experts, along with the co-chair of the Criminal Justice Committee, Justin Slaughter, who uh, was working on the Safety Act. So, again, it's just the next phase of the conversation. And um, they're doing a great job bringing in everyone, hearing all perspectives, and really trying to find that balance, that reasonable way to move forward and really put a stop to the madness. You've said something very interesting. You mentioned the cops, and um, I happen to... I have a great deal of sympathy for what they're up against, and it's been interesting to observe, and you may have noticed this, many chiefs of police are are more in favor of uh, gun safety and gun management regulation um, of the sort that we just, you know, the red flag laws, mental health laws, the all of that stuff. And then the rank and file seem to fall elsewhere on that uh, belief spectrum. Are you noticing this and is that changing and what are you hearing from law enforcement as to how they feel about who should have a gun and how likely they are to run into somebody and be endangered by someone who has a weapon? You know, just like any issue lately, it does feel like we have gotten very polarized on this issue. And I think some of the uh, law enforcement personnel, the rank and file that you mentioned, do feel disenfranchised. They feel um, the morale is low, uh, they're under-resourced, and, and there have been a lot of uh, scrutiny. There's a lot of scrutiny on the police when, you know, we have bad actors, but certainly the vast majority of the police that I've worked with and know are good, decent people that want the same things everybody wants and want to be safe and want to keep communities safe. So I think we have to continue to work for that uh, the balanced approach, you know, and that is responsible gun ownership is fine. But, you know, do we need um, magazines holding more than 10 rounds? Do we need rapid fire devices to be, uh, you know, available everywhere? Do we need to allow straw purchasing to happen and guns to cross the border over here and, and just end up on the streets? I mean, I think most of us can agree we need to do something. Are you hearing that from the rank and file? Are you hearing that from the rank and file cops? I mean, you're on the north side. That's a lot of cops in your yeah. your district. What what do they do? They agree with you? Most of them? Um, you know, I haven't had an in-depth conversation about the bullet points kind of in the bill yet. Oh, that's a terrible pun. Did you make that pun on purpose? I didn't even mean to. I didn't even mean to do that. Okay. But I didn't mean to do that. Okay. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I'll take that away. I will just erase the bullet point pun. I do that all the time by mistake. Go ahead. Oh, uh, not intentional. I guess I'm thinking, thinking of guns. I and mean, that's the thing. Why are we, you know, we're having to think, if I'm spending this time thinking about guns and gun violence and, you know, incidents happening in, in every Chicago neighborhood, you know, it's it's just, it's not sustainable and it's not right. And we should not have to live like this in any part of the city. I think, um, you know, law enforcement officers are trying to do their jobs. We're giving them the tools we can. And one of the tools uh, here that's been utilized a lot in the north side um, are, you know, use of technology and cameras and increased ability to to 
you know, prevent crime as well as being faced with these offenders on the street. So I think we got to look at everything. Everything has to be on the table. Is anybody in Illinois behind any of the lawsuits against gun manufacturers after the Highland Park shooting? I don't recall whether anyone, I know there's an effort now to sue gun manufacturers who create these um, assault-style military-grade weapons and sell them to the public. Is, is any of that local for us here in Illinois? Yes, there is one prominent Chicago law firm, at least, that is working on one of the big lawsuits. I spoke with one of the attorneys not too long ago just to kind of say, hey, I'm glad you're doing this. I mean, at some point, um, we have to address the proliferation of the guns and the fact that the amount of money that is being made on uh, these guns is just staggering. And, and maybe there's some accountability that needs to be held right at the, you know, on the front. Um, we can't just, you know, ignore that. Piece. Well, we do have health and safety regulations on our, you know, our hot dogs and our sushi and our kids' toys. And for my part, it's always astonished me that when you can have trigger locks that are, are tailored to the legally registered individual and the fire, fire in, let me try that again, the individually registered individual who owns that firearm and you could make it impossible for somebody who wasn't that owner to steal the gun and use it. Um, I mean, that right there tells me everything I need to know about what the ultimate cynical purpose of some of the people selling these firearms really is. So um, I, I would hope I would hope that um, these law firms are successful in getting the manufacturers to see that their financial bottom line is being affected by uh, not helping legal gun owners properly secure their firearms. I mean, you know the data. There, These home accidents with improperly secured firearms, I'm sure there's not a parent who's had something go horribly amiss who doesn't wish there had been a proper trigger lock on that weapon. Such an intriguing idea. And the question I have on that is, why not? Why not? We should absolutely be exploring that. Well, for the same reason that um, in California, I think it was Gil Garcetti who tried to uh, require a kill switch on your cell phone, that if your phone was stolen, they could actually render it completely unusable by anybody else. But cell phone companies, just like gun companies, count on people buying more and more of their product. And if there's a way that nobody would steal their product because it would be unusable, that's fewer replacement products they would sell. Mm-hmm. So, I like that idea. well, there are things that can, I mean, the technology is there. Um, as far as I understand, I, I don't think I'm wrong about having read that this could be done. Um, but I'm I'm glad that any any little progress we can make towards not having these horrific incidents of violence. And I, I appreciate so much that you're building coalitions between people who are responsible gun owners and people of every stripe around that. Um, because I think that gun owners, I mean, I think gun owners, private gun owners have been vilified in, in a way that just makes them put their hackles up and say, I want no part of this. And most gun owners that I know, because I come from Kansas, they're reasonable people. They don't want anybody to be victims of crimes with their guns. Um, who, As you just pointed out, who does? Anything else quickly before we say goodbye today uh, that, that you think is noteworthy in your session that just that, that you're working on? 
You know, these are really top of mind issues, so thank you for covering them today. Of course, you know, we're going to look and be seeing in Illinois what else we need to do to ensure uh, that we preserve the access to safe and legal abortion here and can accommodate incoming people that are seeking health care here. So I would say, you know, uh, assault weapons ban, possibly guns, and uh, maybe some abortion legislation uh, to be considered. So Wonderful. Well, thank you. I just keep up all of that good work. I appreciate your time, and thank you for joining us on WCPT. It's Joan Esposito's show. I am in for Joan today. You just heard from 11th District Representative Ann Williams about what she's up to. I'm sure if you want to get in touch with the representative, she's got a lot of ways to do that on her website. You go right ahead. She seems to be very open to hearing from everybody about everything. Uh, We will be joined in a moment by Eric Zorn, a sort of related uh, gun topic um, for conversation, a little bit about whistleblowers, a little bit about weaponry, all of that from the Picayune Times in a moment on WCPT. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. Need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820, where facts matter. Did I misname him before? It's the Picune Sentinel and Eric Zorn. I wouldn't misname him, but I think I had a times where there should be a Sentinel or something like that. Forgive me, Eric. Welcome. All is forgiven, Tori. Nice to talk to you again. It is my pleasure. I was so excited to find out that this was a this was a Picayune Sentinel day on the Joan Esposito show because you you choose such interesting things to write about. It's hard to figure out where I want to start, but I think it was pretty easy today because um, you you did an update in the Picayune Sentinel on the whistleblowing police officer in Chicago who refused to provide cover for um, another officer who had killed an autistic 18-year-old back in, what was it, 2019 that this happened? And uh, Uh, yes. Yeah, it was 2017. Was it was a shooting? He didn't. He didn't kill the kid. He just wounded him. Oh, thank you for accuracy in media, uh, yeah. of which I am notoriously um, sometimes lacking. Uh, so, so the kid was shot, not killed. His family had reported him missing, and they just awarded someone who refused to be complicit in covering up the particulars of this shooting with nearly a million dollars. Is that accurate? Nine hundred and something thousand dollars? That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a story I had written about back when I was at the Tribune. And what happened was there was this this 18 year old kid, uh, you know, young man uh, who uh, has autism and he was wandering around on a street and but not doing anything. And the cop pulled up and Sergeant Khalil Muhammad just opened fire on the kid. He takes like two steps toward the police vehicle. I mean, not even, not, they didn't have a weapon on him or anything like that. And the cop just opens fire on him. And you see, I mean, this is not, don't take my word for it. The video is, I posted the video to the Picayune Sentinel. You can see it. It's like, it is just a grotesque shooting. It's genuinely so a WTF I, video. Like, yeah, you look at oh, this. And you, totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's not one of those ones. Sometimes, sometimes some of these police shooting videos, you say, "Well, 
I don't know. That's a that was a tough call that cop had to make, and it was a tough sudden situation. But but this was not. This was this was really bad. And so and so anyway. So 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 Sergeant Lambert, he's the detective sergeant over this thing. He refused to sign off on something that says that my, that the kid was an aggressor. The eighteen year old young man was the aggressor. He refused to sign off on this. He saw the video. He he knew this was wrong. And he ended up getting demoted, and he says that this was because he refused to cover for the the uh, for Officer Muhammad. Now, the thing that's weird about this the story, and more outrageous, is the city admitted that this was bad. They ended up uh, suspending Muhammad for six months, which I, I don't know. I think a cop that opens fire on somebody for no reason deserves a little bit more than six months off. Maybe maybe never. With pay or without on. pay, they suspended him. Uh, I probably without pay, but I'm that I'm not that detail I'm not sure of. But uh, but Lambert, uh, and, well, and then of course the city paid two point two five million to settle a lawsuit filed by the kid's family. So so this was everybody knew that it was a bad shoot, and Lambert wouldn't sign off on this, and he was seen as a, a troublemaker and was busted to patrol overnights, and uh, and so he sued and. I mean, the the Sun Times, Andy Grimm of the Sun Times did a great job covering the trial uh, that that just wound up. And the uh, as, as you said in your uh, in your intro, the uh, the jury, the Cook County jury, awarded him nine hundred and ten thousand dollars. So for, so uh, let I mean the hope in this award, as his attorney said, um, is that that this will encourage other people who are witnesses and police officers to police misconduct of this sort not to be afraid to come forward but realistically do you do you think it will make a difference i'm still skeptical i think you have to have a backbone of steel as a police officer to to not follow the flow and and just go along with whatever fellow officers are are positing as far as what happened how why well, that's true, and I think that you look at what Lambert's gone through—that he was busted down, he had to file a lawsuit, he got to go through. I mean, this, it, this was in 2017. This happened, and and it's uh, almost 2023. So you talk about you know all these years of, of of trouble, and he could have saved himself a lot of trouble by just signing off on a thing saying that the. Uh, the the young man was the aggressor, not the and not the police officer. He could have saved himself a lot of trouble, and I think that message is still there, unfortunately. And you know, I, I was comparing this to what happened with Laquan McDonald, and of course, you know, all the listeners know that story. But that was in 2014, and uh, Jason Officer Jason Van Dyke just emptied his gun into uh, a young man who was walking away from him, and all the officers on the scene somehow saw. Laquan McDonald as the aggressor and the the police reports. And I, I thought this was the the real scandal in this case. It was not just that one officer you know lost his mind temporarily, and, yeah. and it was that all the other officers who were there who saw it were willing to. They lost their vision. They lo- they lost their minds and their vision apparently at the well, same and time. Their, and their and their integrity, which which I, and and you just boy you think like and the, and the reason why this is I mean that's obviously a problem in each individual case. What, I, I have a question for you. The trust. Yeah, uh, sure. Yes. So while um, this the officer who just received a million dollars almost, whose name is, of course, like flown out of my head because that's my head. Isaac Lambert. Thank you very much. Um, it, what's off, you want to know the awful true confession? Because the victim's name is Hayes and the cop's name is Isaac. I have had this horrible conflation in my mind. Mm. 
<laughs> and I'm like, I have to go, no, not Isaac Hayes, no. So, um, bad cat shaft. Yeah, that would be bad. All very bad. So, um, did he, did uh, Officer Lambert endure additional harassment while he was waiting for his case to proceed? Or did people shun him? Or how has it been for him, do you know, in the intervening time since he filed his lawsuit? I don't know. And it's something that, that uh, was worth following up on. It was very hard to report this story back when I wrote about it uh, about two years ago because – Everyone was clamped down because of the lawsuits. That the lawyers don't want him to say anything. They, you know, the, everybody, everybody is, is keeping quiet at this point. Now that it's over, maybe I should reach out to him and find out what what did happen. My well, guess I'll is I'll be that, here tomorrow, that, uh, Eric. If you reach him between now and tomorrow, do me a favor and tell me what he says because it cannot. I mean. I cannot possibly envision that it's been pleasant for him. He's still working. They demoted him, but they couldn't retaliate officially against him um, as a whistleblower. So he's presumably been working all along. Yeah, presumably. Yeah, I'm not sure if he had to take some time off. He he did talk about in his lawsuit having some uh, some health problems that was were related to this as well. So I mean, you know, the kind of kind of stress related health problems. So so I I do need you know, you're actually reminding me that it's time to reach out again because when people when when people are in court and as, this is just true in just about every story. Unless you're Sam Bankman Freed, you don't talk to the media. Yeah. You don't talk to anybody unless you're well, you, and we see why when Sam Bankman-Fried blabs and he's going to get himself in trouble. So, well, maybe we'll so talk some more about talk. that in a moment. Hang on, because I want to talk to you about that and also my favorite intrusive editor story that you highlighted in the Picayune Sentinel about uh, somebody who got edited right out of a job. So we'll we'll talk about that in just a second. It's Joan Esposito's show on WCPT. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are with Eric Zorn. It is his usual date to appear. Eric, uh, formerly writing for the Tribune and now writing his own very cool uh, newsletter, which I recommend, the Picayune Sentinel. You can just, I don't, what's the subscription cost, Eric? Well, you can get it for free. I send it out to anybody who wants it on Thursdays, and then I have a subscriber edition, which is fifty dollars a year, and I send that out on Tuesdays. And that, you know, it's like I'm not going to argue that it's worth it necessarily, <laughs> uh, but, but but it supports me doing it both times. So that the extra edition is worth it. But I'm going to say that that uh, it'll pay to rehair your fiddle bow once in a while. That's uh, yeah, which it does need. Uh, by the way, how but, did I know? Uh, I was speaking of the art. I did. I have a recommendation for you. If you haven't seen Bald Sisters yet at Steppenwolf, we had the um, the playwright on the air a few weeks ago, and it is charming, funny, and and a story worth hearing. So I'll give you that one for for yeah, your. Yeah, I, re- I read the reviews. I read the reviews of that. That looks really good. Well, I don't know about everybody else's review, darling, but mine is a is a is a positive. So. I love it when um, you get into these media when you when you referee the media spats, as it were. Would you say that's a fair fair rendering of what you did here? This John Fountain professor, John Fountain, and his op-ed columns versus the uh, Sun Times. How, how does she pronounce her name? Jennifer Coy. 
Co. Co. Okay. K K H O. Okay. Co. Yeah. She's the new. She's the new executive editor at the Sun Times. The editor in chief. The new executive editor at the Sun Times. And uh, yeah, I mean, what what happened, John? And many readers, many of uh, CPT listeners will know John Fountain's column. He's a uh, African American professor at uh, at Roosevelt, and and I, I mentioned his race because he does. He writes a lot about race issues, uh, and very powerfully. And he's won a lot of awards. Uh, and he's uh, he's a a prominent, important voice in the city. And Jennifer is new to the Sun Times. Jennifer Coe is new, and uh, for some reason, uh, for his last column of the month of November, uh, Coe took over editing it, and that's kind of unusual. I can tell you that in all my years writing a column at the Tribune, and I wrote a column for more than thirty years, uh, they um, they never had the editor in chief edit my column. But but uh, Jennifer Coe edited his column, and she. And she did it in a very heavy-handed way, um, and I and I have online at the Picking Sentinel. You can see. Give, give me some choice, for instances. Couple couple choice, for yeah. instances. Well, I mean, I, you know, the, the the choice, for instance. I mean, one thing that he did is he wanted to sort of build up. What, what happened was that one of his former students, who had died, unfortunately, uh, had done a documentary, written a documentary, um, and produced it, and it was going to be on the Marquee Network. And and John's column is not a straightforward news column. It it, it uh, it's an it opinion up, column. He, it's he, a social. Well, it's more than that. He's, he's a storyteller. I mean, yeah. So he's a storyteller. So he 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 holds back. He holds back some information. He, he doesn't. He buries the lead. Uh, to put it in journalism terms, he doesn't. He doesn't just you know hit with the facts. And so she comes back with him with a with a um, uh, a. Um, a story that begins, a former journalism student of mine has really big news this week. His film, Dream Chaser, is airing at 7 p.m. Friday. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. So she, so she takes the, the, the Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, and sticks it right up front. Sticks it right up front. And, you know, I... I, I, and I I looked at and I have these. I have you know both of her. She she submitted to him two alternate versions, both of which had a lot of her in it and and, and not a lot of him, or I would not say not a lot of less him, of him. Was a lot of her. Yeah, less of him. Yeah, that she really had had uh, had moved things around. It was a, it was a fairly major edit. Um, and like I say, John has a has a has a very good uh, and long reputation in this town, and he's won a lot of prizes. And he's and he he doesn't write a straightforward. Column. He's an, he's an idiosyncratic so writer. He's a let me pause writer. you. He's voice. Wait, I'm going to pause you yeah. for a second. Does this have? Is there some kind of thing going on at the Sun Times where they're counting the clicks? Like you, they leave you alone if your column is the most read or gets the most clicks, and then if they feel like you are not getting your enough clicks, enough reads, they start to. I believe the technical term is potchkey with your work. Is that is that uh, what's happening? And does this have anything to do I, with the W B Z merger? Does this uh, what 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 I is? I don't know. Those, those are good questions. I mean, my analysis of this is that that uh, Jennifer Coe is new, and her coming in. And and doing this kind of a heavy-handed edit on John Fountain's column uh, without having the kind of relationship. Now, I, you know, I've had editors. Uh, obviously, every every columnist has an editor, and I've had really great. I had really great editors at the Tribune. It was very collegial, very collaborative, and we got we got into it at times. But because we had built up uh, trust. years, months of tr- of trust and respect, and and real, and I realized that every editor I had wanted to make my column better, and I trusted I trusted them to do that 
And so we would disagree sometimes, and sometimes I would insist, and other times they would insist. And, and that's how it works. There's a lot of give and take. Yeah. But it's a, it's a tricky relationship. It's one that has to be built. And I think what happened was that, that it seems to me is she came in sort of guns blazing, so to speak. And I am the really boss of you, insulted. we call that. I am the boss yeah. of you. Yes. Well, we have um, that in radio, too. I mean, if you work with I'm a sure. program director and they air check you, and that's another look behind the curtain, usually – when I work full time someplace, I have I have times where I sit down with my trusted leader and we go over the show and we say, well, you know, do you think you could have done this better or differently? And then that, as you point out, anyone who's trying to make your work better gets a certain a certain amount of leeway. But if you don't know somebody and they just show up and start saying, you know, sound more like this, sound more like that, write more like this, write more like that. The instinct is that you're like a cat that's been petted the wrong way. Yes. Oh, that's a great that's a great analogy, a great metaphor. It's it's exactly true. And I think what happened here is that that they just really got off on a on a bad foot and and John has said some things. I printed his response. She gave a, a comment to me yesterday. I printed a comment. And I About how she's reaching out it. and it's so terrible and they're seeking to yeah. move. And he said, really? I haven't heard beans from her. Yeah. And, and, he, and he basically said, you know, uh, that this is uh, uh, that, that her 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 words were fairly empty because of the way she attacked him. And the reason that this is a, a story at all is that I said, John is, is an important columnist in town. He's been around 13 years. I worked with John when he was at the Tribune many, many years ago. He worked at the New York Times, the Washington Post. He he commands and deserves a lot of respect, and he's also an, an excellent journalism professor from everything I've heard. Uh, his voice is important in the Sun-Times. Uh, the Sun-Times lost Laura Washington, who's an African-American columnist, because the Tribune swiped her from them. And and we need those diverse voices in our newspapers. And and to lose John's voice over this. Yes. You know, I mean, the thing is, like, if this were like, if John had tried something really edgy, you know, he'd uh, you know, tried to defend a terrible person or defend a very odd idea. This was a pretty straightforward story about a, a guy who did well, a guy John knew who did well. And it was it was it was a touching story. And whether it was it should have been done the way he wanted it to, whether it should have been adjusted in some ways. I'm not going to referee that. I mean, that, there's matters of taste and stuff, but but I I do really strongly think that this is something that the Sun Times and Jennifer Coe needs to rectify. They need to. All right. So let me know, pause you again for a moment. Yeah. We we've had several strange revolving door editorial situations in the city in the last I don't know five six years. Uh, the Reader and I can I think they had over at the. Tribune. What is going on? Why are people being hired and then sacked immediately? What is happening? And and, and why well, are they hiring people who, from from your telling, seem less than adroit at what they're hired to do? Well, I'm not I'm not sure what you're talking about with the Tribune, but the Reader story it was when one of the co-owners was given a column. And he wrote a column uh, basically against vaccinating his child. And there was a great deal of pushback on the staff. And so they wanted to I – mean, it's very complicated. So I covered that in great detail. But, it's, but essentially the problem was the mistake there was you, you can't give a column to someone who is not going to – who is higher than you are, higher than, than his or her editors in the food chain. And so the pushback that he got – 
and that they were trying to give to him, he wouldn't accept. And as the owner, he felt like he could take his ball and go home. And it was it was a really dicey situation. And the reader staff protested outside his house, and it was it was pretty nasty. He, and he he did the right thing in the end. He stepped back, stepped away from the the, the paper. And after he saved it too, and I got to say that uh, Len Goodman saved the, the Chicago Reader by putting a bunch of money into it when it really needed it. And then they caused this this great uh, Sturm und Drang when when he uh, wrote this column. But but didn't they have a Yet another another quick turnaround with uh, Mark. Uh, I can't think of his Pulitzer Prize winning writer. They gave the editorial. Oh, come now! I'm so bad with names. Um, this is going to torment me at three in the morning. But there was somebody else that they gave a, a position to, and and he lasted like three weeks. You're not. Oh, 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 you're talking about Mark Conkle. Thank they, you. Uh, and, and, and they gave him, they gave him the editorship. Right. And he chose a cover, some cover art that showed J.B. Pritzker with a lawn jockey. And it was meant to be, you know, cr- criticizing Pritzker, but I think they felt the imagery of the lawn jockey was over the top. Um, and they, they ended up, um, uh, giving, giving Conkle the sack. He now writes a column for the patch. But, uh, yeah, that was several years ago. Yeah. So and, here's and, uh, what I want to know when I mention all of these things. Um, there's a whole lot of education that goes into being a good journalist. What is what is going into being a good editor and why do we seem to have is it budgeting that they're just anyone who will do the job or they're all doing six jobs or that, you know, the management only cares about ads. What What is behind what I seem to be noticing, assuming I'm accurate, people who don't know how to be good editors? Eric, have we lost him? I know I didn't stump him. (laughs) I know for sure I didn't stump him. We're going to reconnect with him because I don't want it to even sound like I stumped him because that does not happen. We'll reconnect with Eric. But there does seem to be, and I'm trying to remember why I thought there was something at the Tribune too, um, somebody who was was, uh, editing who also had a bit of a difficulty with something that they had edited and I I'm so bad with names but we're gonna we're gonna retrieve Eric if we can are we having trouble finding him back that's okay we have other things we can talk about until I do it gives me a great opportunity to say my thank yous also to Lady B and to Eric and to Matt who's I believe tomorrow going to be up to his hips in Christmas cookie decorating um tis the season for that and I, I have to say, um, I am always happy to walk into a radio station break room and find and a, plate, find of a Christmas plate of Christmas cookies. Hello. Cookie? Hey, Eric. Hey, Eric. I'm, I'm, I'm getting horrible, I'm getting horrible, feedback, horrible now, feedback now, which we are now going now, to fix. Which we are now going to fix. Lady B? I think we're okay. We've just, have we got you back? Yes, I'm here. Oh, good. Okay. So my question, I don't know if you heard it before everything went to heck in a handbasket. Does it seem like we're educating journalists, but not editors and executives of media companies? And if that's a correct assessment, what could we change? Well, I, I, I don't think that that's the case. I, I've, I've had so many really good editors or I had so many really good editors in my time at the, uh, at the Tribune. They're still working, uh, all of them? Uh, well, no, they're not. They've, a lot of them have moved on. That's I mean, my question. 
So I, I mean, I think that media right now, especially print media, is really struggling to to, uh, to have things properly edited and pro- properly covered. That it's a it's a tough it's a tough situation. So the idea of like, well, we'll put extra training in or whatever to try to stop these kind of things from happening, I don't think it's realistic. I think these are sort of one off stories, uh, and I think it's more of a management issue than an actually. An so you don't think it's realistic because I see management training all over the place, and I see radio stations bringing in consultants to teach managers how to talk to talent i want to know why that's not happening on the print side i think it's a good idea i think that's a good point i think that there does need to be more i mean I, this does strike me this the situation in the sun times right now strikes me it's a, it's a failure of management and this isn't i'm not ruling on the on the uh the, the merits of the editing I think just utterly preventable bad management and yes. utterly preventable i wish we had more time but someday we will thank you so much someday eric for being with us it, it is uh eric zorn's day to join joan esposito i'm Tory writer in for joan eric is in charge of the picky and sentinel you should find him online and read his stuff because i've been his fan for longer than i care to admit i'll be here for joan tomorrow thanks you thank you all for listening